You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information A few weeks ago, I finished a unit on minerals in the earth science class that I teach, and I asked my students how it's possible that both the minerals graphite and diamond can be made of pure carbon, basically the same stuff, yet graphite is among the softest of all known minerals and diamond among the hardest. The answer lies in how the carbon atoms are bonded together. You see, in graphite, the carbon bonds strongly into flat sheets, but the bonds between those sheets are incredibly weak, and that allows one sheet to simply slide on top of the next. That's why graphite is such a great lubricant. To demonstrate this, I had one of my ninth grade boys throw his leg up on the lab table. You see, he had received some sort of injury over the summer that required him to wear a medical boot, and the boot was held closed by large Velcro-like straps. And just like the graphite sheets, it's very easy to separate the sheets of Velcro from one another. Everybody does that all the time. But have you ever tried to rip a Velcro sheet in half? It's almost impossible. There's very strong bonds there. Diamond, on the other hand, is incredibly hard. There's basically nothing that you own that can scratch a diamond. But that doesn't mean it can't break. I try to tell my students that there's a big difference between hardness, that's the mineral's resistance to scratching, and its strength. You may not be able to scratch a diamond, but you'd be surprised to find out that it breaks quite easily. My mom once told me the story of how her sister's diamond engagement ring just shattered without much effort. So, if you could ever afford to purchase a diamond hammer, you should probably say no. That's because it would probably shatter on its first whack. In 1957, three awning salesmen sat in a bar on the north side of Chicago, and the subject of diamonds entered the conversation. Joseph Murano, 39 years of age, and Leslie Cohn, age 42, listened attentively as newly hired 39-year-old Joseph Schmitz described his 20-plus years of adventure on the high seas. He captivated his audience of two with endless stories of jungle exploration, covert meetings, and harrowing escapes. Schmitz said he was planning to purchase a small schooner and then sail for Africa to join in on the illegal trade of diamonds. He felt that a smaller boat would allow him to slip into port under the cover of darkness, obtain the diamonds from Arab and Portuguese dealers, then ferry them north, possibly to Cairo or Casablanca, and sell them at a significant profit. Even better would be if he could hook up with geologists that he was acquainted with, you know, then he could knock out the middleman and become rich beyond his wildest dreams. If this all sounds like a bunch of bull poop, it's not. While a couple of minor white lies were told, most of what he said was totally true. 
Schmitz really had traveled the seas for a couple of decades. He had a master mariner's license, and he really did escape from bad situations multiple times. Needless to say, Murano and Cohn were hooked by what he had to say. Neither had ever sailed in anything more than a rowboat. But the thought of an overseas adventure and being part of the lucrative, if illegal, diamond trade, well, that was far more appealing than their dead-end aluminum awning sales jobs. They wanted in. Months later, after their adventure had ended, Cohn said, We suddenly realized that we'd been restless for some time and were ready for a little travel and change of scene. When the two questioned Schmitz as to when he planned to depart, he replied, Not until next year. It will take me that long to save the money to buy my schooner. To which Cohn replied, Next year? Let's go now. We'll put on with you as partners. Schmitz agreed. It's a deal. We'll sail for Africa in August. None of these guys had much in the way of savings, so Cohn and Murano sold their most valuable assets to finance the trip. Basically, they sold their cars. They then made a visit to the local sporting goods store to purchase everything they thought would be needed for a trip like this. You know, they're going overseas, and then they're going to be in the jungle. So they bought the obligatory yachting caps and elephant guns. Elephant guns? It seemed logical to me. Every movie I've seen of Africa, there's lions and tigers running around loose. In early August, they packed up everything and headed for the Long Island Sound that lies between New York and Connecticut. Upon arrival, Schmitz telephoned a New York advertising executive named Clayton Jager and set up a time to meet and discuss the sale of his 52-foot, or 15.8-meter-long boat, named the Serene. The next day, the three men went to meet up with Jager, and both Cohn and Murano were surprised by how small the boat appeared to be. What it was lacking for in size was made up for in niceties. In addition to having a full set of sails, each man could take comfort in the so-called saloon that was below deck. There was also a captain's cabin, a galley kitchen, the obligatory bathroom, you can't go anywhere without one of those, and, should one find themselves adrift, there was a gas-powered engine. As Murano and Cohn began to fully take in the pros and cons of what they were in for, Schmitz went below deck with Jaeger to discuss the terms of the sale. Once back on shore, Schmitz told the other two that a purchase price had been agreed upon and they would be departing shortly. So they spent the next few days gathering up the nautical equipment and food required for this long voyage. While they did purchase some perishables like eggs, potatoes, and tomatoes, Schmitz advised that they should stock up on foods that wouldn't spoil easily. That included cans of beans, sauerkraut, sardines, cheese, peanut butter, dried prunes, and soda crackers. He assured them that once they reached the African coast, they would be dining upon fresh meats and fruits. Early on the morning of August 14, 1957, the three finally set out from City Island in the Bronx on what was certain to be the adventure of a lifetime. While Schmitz had earlier implied that sailing a ship of this size was a fairly easy thing to do, Cohn and Murano quickly realized that it was anything but. They were totally unprepared for what was about to come. 
While still in calm water, Schmitz attempted to give his two assistants a lesson in handling the lines. It was mass confusion. As Schmitz was blurting out commands that they could barely understand, the two novices were getting tangled up in the unfolding sails and ropes, smashing into the masts, and just plain getting beaten up and bruised by the whole experience. Murano later stated, To turn one of these schooners around is a big operation. Everybody jerking on the ropes and the captain making with the yacht lingo and all the time a big boom is flying around that's liable to whack your head right off. Once the drill was over, the two went below deck to grab a beer. They didn't have long to relax. Seemingly out of nowhere, the floor of the saloon just rose up and then crashed back down, sending Murano and Cone flat down onto the carpeted floor. The storm that they had sailed into seemed to increase in intensity with each passing hour. At one point, Schmitz tied himself to the captain's wheel, and he ordered the two inexperienced partners below deck until the storm passed. In the meantime, each would take turns crawling on deck and spoon-feeding Schmitz from a can of beans. At one point, the schooner just rolled so sharply that its mast nearly touched the water. Even worse, the cabin started to fill with water. So Schmitz told the two men that they needed to start the engine up and of course pump the water out. But it wouldn't turn over. It was later determined that the fuel lines had broken and much of the gasoline had leaked into the ship's bilge. They proceeded to pump by hand, not realizing they were pumping out hundreds of gallons of fuel out of the boat. Even if they could fix the engine, they had no gasoline to run it on. When the storm finally passed three days later, the yacht was spotted by a Navy transport ship. It headed over to see if the three were in need of any help, but Schmitz assured them that everything was just fine. Kona Murano stood there stunned as they watched him turn down an offer of much-needed assistance. Schmitz assured the two that he had been through far worse and that everything would be fine. But he was wrong. So, so very wrong. You see, the sails of the ship were in tatters and were getting worse with each passing day. You know, patches only go so far. Even worse, Schmitz calculated that the storm had blown the serene way off course and they were near Bermuda. Murano and Cohn felt that anchoring there was the most logical thing to do, yet Schmitz vehemently argued against the idea. He said not only did he lack the maps needed to navigate their waters safely, but he felt that they could make better use of their time heading straight for the African coast. He also had the big advantage in the fact that he was the only one who knew how to sail a boat. They had to do what he said. As they continued on their journey, another life-threatening situation appeared. This time they had sailed into dead, calm water. And as you know, sails need the wind to move, and they were going nowhere. Under normal circumstances, they would simply start the gas engine. But as I mentioned, they had pumped all the fuel overboard. As a result, day after day, the Serene just sat there. Cohn later stated, You'd go up on deck and see the same bean can bobbing right along with you in the same spot it had been when you tossed it overboard two days ago. I, for one, found this very demoralizing. 
While they didn't challenge Schmitz on his navigational skills, the two began to suspect that they were simply sailing round and round in a circle. Murano stated, All we knew was we were supposed to be sailing due east, and the sun was coming up in a different place every morning. That was fishy. Even worse, they were running out of food and drinking water. Murano had shed 50 pounds and Cone dropped 30. That's approximately 23 and 14 kilograms respectively. This made them far too weak to continually operate the hand pumps to empty the water out of the bilge. Then suddenly everything changed one morning. Schmitz pointed to his mariner's license that he had tacked up on the wall. And everything looked legitimate on the document except for one minor detail. It wasn't Schmitz's name on the license. Instead, it was for someone named Emmanuel K. Burdell. Captain Schmitz was no more. The two underlings were to refer to him as Captain Burdell from that moment on. And not only did Schmitz have a new name, but so did the boat. The Serene was rechristened the V. Marcel. The newly coined Captain Burdell estimated that they would reach the island of Madeira off the western coast of Africa within one day. This was great news for the starving crew, but they still had one more really, really big problem to deal with. They had sailed right into the path of Hurricane Carrie. It just happened to be the strongest tropical cyclone of the 1957 hurricane season. It was so bad that on September 21st of that year, Carrie was powerful enough to destroy the German bark premier. It went down in the Azores just a few hundred miles away from the Serene's location, killing 80 of the 86 men aboard. Clearly a small boat like the V. Marcel barely stood a chance. Kuhn knew the death was near and began to pen what he had titled The Last Days on Earth of Leslie Kohn. Here are some excerpts of that document. Another day, another hurricane. This is the worst mistake two men ever made. Bad storm again. God has never heard three bums pray as loud as we did last night. Constantly wet, working 18 hours a day. If I ever come out of this alive, I'll never set foot on a boat again. Rolling from side to side. Winds 70 to 90 miles per hour. Going nowhere. Murano says let the damn ship sink and get it over with. Burdell says no. He will make it or go down with the ship. Burdell says we may skip Casablanca and go directly to Egypt. Not me. I'm dead. Yet, surprisingly, the V. Marcel somehow weathered the storm. On October 2nd, Murano was down in his bunk, you know, in one of those half-asleep dazes, when his brain latched onto an argument up on deck between Cone and Burdell. He heard Burdell say, I'll tell you they're right here. My calculations show we ought to see them any minute. Hard to believe, but this time Burdell was correct. The Canary Islands were spotted out in the distance, and that's because the storm had blown the V. Marcel approximately 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, south of Madeira. Cone and Murano's 50-day nightmare seemed to be finally over. But it wasn't. 
As soon as they touched shore, Bridell was in a fantastic mood and began planning for the completion of their voyage. Morano later commented, Five minutes after we dropped anchor, he was over on somebody else's boat yapping about yachts as if he'd just come back from a Sunday afternoon spin around the bay. Cohn and Morano really had no desire to travel any farther with Bridell, but they lacked the resources needed to go their own way. They really had no choice but to help out and, you know, and get the ship back in working order. That included repairing the shredded sails, fixing the broken engine, and mortarproofing the rigging using fat obtained from a local slaughterhouse. Growing ever frustrated with Bridell, the two finally decided they had had enough and they quit. But being stranded in the Canaries in 1957 is not the ideal situation but it turns out they weren't alone. It just happens that two American men were sailing from Copenhagen to California, but thieves in Casablanca had robbed them blind. So they agreed to provide Morano and Cone with passage to the West Indies in exchange for stocking the boat with the necessary provisions. So the two sold just about everything they had, and soon the four set sail. Their awful experience of sailing across the ocean with Bridell was now just a memory. Well, at least that's what they thought. Their 44-day trip to the West Indies was anything but pleasant, but when they finally arrived in Barbados, Cone and Murano were greeted with the shock of a lifetime. You see, while still in the Canaries, Murano had written to relatives back in Chicago requesting that they send him money. The replies that he received were not what he had wanted to hear. Instead of sending money, he learned that all three of them were wanted by the FBI for the theft of the Serene. We're going to take a quick break to hear from the sponsor of today's podcast, but when we return, you'll learn what happened next. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Just before the commercial break, I had surprised you with the fact that the three men who are the subject of today's story were wanted by the FBI for the theft of the Serene. It turns out that the Serene had never been for sale in the first place. When Bridell, and his name truly was Emmanuel K. Bridell, when Bridell met with the boat's owner, 35-year-old Clayton T.M. Jager, it was only to lease the boat. In exchange for a $571 fee, the two agreed upon a 10-day excursion, which was later extended to 17 days, that was to be strictly confined within the Long Island Sound. Jager made it perfectly clear to Bridell that under no circumstances was he to sail the boat out into the open ocean. Its sails simply were not up to task. When the boat didn't arrive back after his charter expired, Jager became concerned and contacted the Coast Guard. It wasn't long before airplanes and cutters were searching every inlet along the Atlantic coast 
looking for the serene. When they failed to spot her, thoughts of more sinister plans began to come to light. You know, could they have stolen a boat to smuggle drugs? Were they using it for gun running? Or how about Russian espionage? That's when the FBI was called in to investigate. When the boat was initially rented, Schmitz or Bridell, whichever you prefer, he gave his address as 3435 North Bell Avenue in Chicago. But upon investigation, it was learned that this was a former address of Bridell's cousin Robert Schmitz and his family, and they had moved out about six months prior. Cohn and Morano used the last of their money to fly back to the States. Originally informed that they face a maximum penalty of $10,000, that's $88,000 today, and 10 years in prison, well, the two must have been greatly relieved to find out that no charges would be pressed against them. The FBI was only interested in locating Bridell, who just happened to be on probation from a 20-year suspended sentence for forging checks. Locating Bridell proved difficult because he had already left port. This time he took on an English teacher as his mate and he was sighted in various locations throughout the Canary Islands. Authorities finally caught up with him on November 27th and pending clarification of the true ownership of the Serene, the boat was confined to the naval yards in Las Palmas and placed under constant guard. Two Spanish crewmen and two Swedish women who were aboard at the time, well, they were released after it was determined that they had no involvement whatsoever in the theft of the boat. Burdell was ordered to stay aboard the Serene, but on Tuesday, January 28, 1958, he gave them the slip. He swam underwater past the Spanish guards to freedom. He left everything behind, including his personal belongings and, of course, the Serene itself. A Spanish electrician named, and I know I'm going to butcher this, Severiano Godet Rodriguez. Well, Rodriguez, in exchange for the promise of obtaining a job in New York, he helped Bridell to stow away aboard a fishing boat, and they headed about 300 miles north to Madeira. Upon arrival in Madeira, Spanish authorities turned Bridell away, and he was forced to sail right back to Grand Canary Island. He was rearrested on February 23rd while socializing in a Las Palmas waterfront cafe. This time, Spanish police were taking no chances. They locked him up in a real jail cell. Once extradition proceedings were completed, U.S. Marshal Thomas J. Lunny and Assistant U.S. Attorney Herbert F. Roth, they traveled to the Canary Islands to bring the suspect back. After taking Bridell into their custody, the three boarded the SS Independence on June 26th, and they arrived back in the United States on July 2nd. As the press dug into this bizarre story further, it was learned that Bridell was a married man who had a wife named Mavis and two daughters in Johannesburg, South Africa. He told reporters he had not heard from Mrs. Bridell since this whole diamond-hunting escapade began to unfold. He said, quote, She has no sense of humor, I suppose. His former boss at Translite, that's Milton Rifkin, he stated, It sounded like a television comedy to me. 
We discharged Cohen and Murano early last summer, and Schmidt left later. He sure had a winning personality. He continued. Next thing we knew, federal agents were here asking about the men, and we heard about the stolen yacht. Newspapers called us from all over the world. I don't know what got into those fellows. Four charges were filed against Bridell. That's theft of the Serene, theft of Clayton Jager's personal property, transporting stolen goods, and altering a Coast Guard certificate. He was held on $20,000 bond, that's about $172,000 today, and was facing a prison term of 30 years and or a $30,000 fine. Being totally broke at this point, a Legal Aid Society attorney was assigned to defend him. At all times, Bridell was the model prisoner. He made no attempts to escape, he was polite, cooperative, and he impressed just about everyone, particularly the judge assigned to his case. He pleaded not guilty to all the charges. On October 1st, a jury of two women and ten men deliberated for two hours before returning a guilty verdict. When sentencing took place on November 5, 1958, Federal Judge Archie O'Dawson stated, I told the jury that this case was similar to the one involving Captain Kidd, who was tried here 150 years ago, and I think was hanged on Governor's Island for his crime. He added, I think he is a very brave man. If he had fought in the Navy, he might have got a medal. Dawson sentenced Bridell to one year and one day at the U.S. Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. However, a fine is out of the question as this man is broke. As for the Serene itself, the boat never returned to the United States. The insurance company concluded it would be too costly to do so, and instead they opted to sell it to a Texan who was visiting the Canary Islands at the time. They paid its former owner, Jager, $12,000 for his loss. That's about $103,000 today. It probably shouldn't come as much of a surprise that Captain Bridell would make the national news one more time. This time it was not for stealing boats, but for stealing cars instead. On December 15, 1960, he was arrested for the theft of a Cadillac from a dealer in Westminster, Maryland and transporting the vehicle to New York. Two months later, Bridell and two other men were indicted for operating a lucrative car theft ring. Their modus operandi was to steal late model Cadillacs, transport them to New York, and then sell the automobiles to unsuspecting used car dealers. One of his co-conspirators was given a four-year sentence, the other two and one-half years. The judge recommended that both serve no more than six months in prison, with the remainder of their sentences being suspended. Bridell, on the other hand, wasn't as lucky. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Hmm, I guess he never did find those diamonds. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Some of the barbers are discussing a little of this and that. No kidding, Cliff. Who do you think is the most important woman in the world today? I still say mommy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure, Mother Barbara is the most important woman in our immediate world. 
But, I mean, who do you think is the most important woman in all the world? Who would you say, Claude? Hmm, Mrs. Roosevelt, maybe? Madame Chankashek? Or perhaps Avita Kalpabi? <laughs> You're not very definite, are you, Claude? No, I'm not. But I think they're all important women. Uh-huh. But who is the most important woman? What do you think, Hazel? Well, I'd say the American housewife is the most important woman in the world today, Teddy. She doesn't get any fanfare or glory, but she's doing a 24-hour job that's mighty important to the war effort. You mean keeping the old home fires burning and all that? Oh, that's only a small part of her job, Cliff. For one thing, the American housewife has had to learn to be an even better buyer in order to keep down inflation. You mean she's had to learn how not to buy, unnecessarily, I mean, to do that? Mm-hmm. And she's got to be a pagliacci. You know, laugh when she feels like crying in order to keep up the family's morale. Oh, yes. And probably her greatest contribution to winning the war is keeping up America's high standards of health in spite of rationing and shortages. Well, there's no argument there, Hazel. Thanks to what the American housewife has learned about nutrition and the importance of vitamins in the diet, the health of the American people has never been better. But, of course, there's still room for improvement. So, friends, if you haven't been able to put as much into your war job as you'd like to because you lack energy and vitality, maybe it's because your diet is short on important vitamins. If that's the case, give Fleischmann's seven-day vitamin pickup a chance to help you. Now, this means taking two cakes of Fleischmann's yeast every day for seven days straight. You see, Fleischmann's yeast with the yellow label is the only fresh yeast on the market with both vitamin B complex and added amounts of vitamins A and D. And when you mix it with tomato juice, which contains vitamin C, you've got a delicious vitamin cocktail that contains every vitamin known to be needed in human nutrition. And only two vitamin cocktails give you the daily minimum requirements of vitamins A, B1, C, and D, and a supply of all the vitamins in the B-complex group. So ask your grocer tomorrow for a week's supply, 14 cakes of Fleischmann's yeast, and then, last thing every night, first thing every morning... Drink a vitamin cocktail, Fleischmann's Fresh Yeast in Cool Tomato Juice. Yes, drink it, America. To your health. That commercial for Fleischmann's Yeast is from the August 15, 1943 broadcast of One Man's Family. This particular episode was titled Further Preparations for Claudia's Departure. Having just used Fleischmann's Yeast the other day to make bread for Thanksgiving... At least in my mind, this seemed like a good choice for the podcast. The story goes of Charles Fleischmann, who was born in what was then the Austrian Empire. He came to the United States in 1866, and he was dismayed by the quality of bread here. He thought it was awful. Being the son of a brewer baker, he traveled back home and he obtained some samples of his dad's yeast. He then returned to the U.S. and brought his brother Maximilian with him, and in 1868, the two settled in Cincinnati. Their next step was to take their yeast to a successful Cincinnati brewer named James Gaff. He was so impressed by their product that he was willing to provide financial backing. Together, they established Gaff, Fleischmann & Company, and in 1869 the company introduced its compressed yeast to the market. It was the first standardized yeast to be sold commercially, and it was an immediate success. In 1876, they advertised that more than one million families were using their product. 
That same year, the company set up a concession stand at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Now, keep in mind, this is the 100th anniversary of the United States, and with an estimated 10 million people attending the exposition, their yeast became even more popular. When James Gaff died on January 29th of 1879, the Fleischmanns purchased the company outright from Mrs. Gaff. In 1929, Fleischmann's became part of Standard Brands. Then, in 1981, it became part of Nabisco, and in 1986, it was sold to the Australian company Burns Philp, which, in turn, in 2004, sold its yeast business to Associated British Foods, subsidiary ACH Food, where it stays today. So here's a question for you. On March 14th of 1950, Thomas James Holden became the first man to do something. Well, it's more like something he did, and it was really, really wrong, terribly wrong. But it did make him the first to have this undesired-by-anyone recognition. Do you know what he was the first to do? Well, I'll give you a few minutes to think about it, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As you know, critics can sometimes write some of the most savage reviews. So here are the reviews of three popular music acts from the 70s, and I'll leave the most brutal one for last. A November 4th, 1970 review of the album titled Writer, Carol King, just tore into her singing ability. Quote, It is notable that the title of this album is not Singer Carol King. Carol King may be an excellent writer, but as a singer, she is barely competent. Her vocal range is very limited, she can't sing any high notes, and at times her voice sounds flat and bored. The article continues, The tunes and the instrumentation help make up for the fact that Carol King can barely sing, making this album enjoyable, if somewhat vacuous. It concludes that the songs may appear on other artists' albums in the future, quote, but this is probably the first and only album Carole King will ever make. Just a little off there. You probably know the story about her next album, which was titled Tapestry. It was the number one best-selling album for 15 consecutive weeks, had the second longest run of any album ever on the Billboard 200 chart, that's after Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and to date it has sold over 25 million copies. 
You may or may not know this, but Elton John was the best-selling musical act of the 70s. But few people realize that the best-selling American band was the brother-sister act, The Carpenters. Well, James D. Diltz offered up a review of a Carpenters concert in the August 3rd, 1972 issue of the Baltimore Sun, and he immediately observed how different it was from any other concert he had attended. Quote, I knew something was wrong as soon as I got to the gate. No suburban attack squads in tattered clothes roaming the fence, fainting at the entrance only to go over or under further down. No rocks, no epithets. Even more unusual was how easy it was for him to get backstage. You know, roadies and managers do everything possible to keep fans from gaining access. Yet it was very different this time. Believe it or not, the group's manager walked out to greet him and let Diltz in without any debate. And once the Carpenters hit the stage, it was more of the same. He couldn't help but notice that some of the audience members were dressed in nice clothing, they stayed in their seats, and there was no sign of drugs or alcohol. Now, personally, the Carpenters have always been one of my guilty pleasures. And I know that their syrupy music makes people want to puke. But in my mind, no one can sing a depressing song better than Karen Carpenter. Well, Diltz offered up his opinion, quote, The Carpenters' music bears the same relationship to American popular music, roughly, as Disneyland bears to American society. All the impurities, the vitality, the diversity have been strained out, and the bland remainder repackaged into a sort of Mickey Mouse version of the real thing. Lastly, on April 6, 1976, the Ottawa Journal published an article penned by Ian Haysom on the rock group Heart, who have sold more than 35 million records to date. The story was titled, quote, Call Them Vancouver Superflops. He just tore into how bad he thought Hart really was. The story begins, quote, Take Hart as far away as possible, and for Ottawa's and Canada's sake, don't let them encroach upon our sensibilities again. Plug their ventricles, twist their arteries, allow them to expire quickly. He described their performance at the National Arts Center the previous evening as, quote, It was painful ugly, excruciating, and artistically disgusting. He continued, Suffice to say that almost everything they try, they do badly. They can't sing, they can't play their instruments, and they can't entertain. The only person in the band that had anything positive to say about was lead singer Ann Wilson, whom many today consider to be one of the best female rock vocalists ever. Quote, only Ann Wilson, a female parody of Mick Jagger with as much talent overall as he possesses in his lower lip, approaches that thing called ability. She plays the flute passably well and struts sexily about the stage, which at least takes attention away from the music such as it is. He concludes his brutal attack on the band with, quote, So have a heart heart and have a heart attack for music's sake. Ouch. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you about Thomas James Holden. Did you know what he was the first to do? 
Well, before I give you the answer, I should probably provide you with a little background as to who he was. Basically, Thomas or Tough Tommy Holden led a life of crime. It started with the robbing of banks, payrolls, and mail trains in the 1920s, but then two members of the gang that he ran with, that's Frank Weber and Charles Harmon, they murdered a hostage while robbing a bank in Monotomy, Wisconsin. Tommy and his partner Frank Keating, you know, the famed Holden Keating gang, they were furious, and soon the bodies of Weber and Harmon were found in a ditch. Any guesses to who murdered them? In 1928, the two robbed a train in Evergreen Park, Chicago, and earned the nicknames of the Evergreen Bandits. Both were sent to Leavenworth for the crime, but they weren't there that long. Somehow, they were able to use forged passes to escape from the prison in December of 1931. The two ended up in Kansas City and hooked up with the Barker Carpus Gang. And of course, they did what they did best. They robbed more banks. Well, authorities finally caught up with them while they were out playing golf, of all things, and they were rearrested on December 7th of 1932. Some 15 years later, that's November 28th of 1947, Tommy Holden was paroled from Leavenworth, but he was far from reformed. On June 5th of 1949, he got into an argument, he was drunk of course, he got into an argument with his wife and he shot her dead. He then turned the gun on her two brothers and he killed them also. So to answer the question I had asked earlier, on March 14th, 1950, he became the first man to be listed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. He was now public enemy number one. It was while he was working as a plaster in Beaverton, Oregon, that a local recognized him from a picture that had appeared in the Oregonian newspaper on June 20th of 1951. He was arrested two days later and died in prison two years after that. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Be sure to sign up for my new Twitter feed, that's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You know, you can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or through any of the leading podcast directories, and it will automatically be downloaded when a new episode is released. Just a reminder that the Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all of the high-quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and I'll hope you tune in the next time. Bye!